Section 12 of A Popular History of France, Volume 5. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 5, by François Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter 36, Henry IV, Catholic King, 1593-1610, Part 7. At the beginning of the seventeenth century, Henry IV was the only one remaining of the three great sovereigns who during the sixteenth had disputed, as regarded religion and politics, the preponderance in Europe. He had succeeded in all his kingly enterprises. He had become a Catholic in France without ceasing to be the prop of the Protestants in Europe. He had made peace with Spain without embroiling himself with England, Holland, and Lutheran Germany he had shot up as regarded ability and influence in the eyes of all europe it was just then that he gave the strongest proof of his great judgment and political sagacity he was not intoxicated with success he did not abuse his power he did not aspire to distant conquests or brilliant achievements he concerned himself chiefly with the establishment of public order in his kingdom and with his people's prosperity his well-known saying quote, i want all my peasantry to have a fowl in the pot every sunday end quote, was a desire worthy of louis the twelfth henry the fourth had a sympathetic nature his grandeur did not lead him to forget the nameless multitudes whose fate depended upon his government he had besides the rich productive varied inquiring mind of one who took an interest not only in the welfare of the french peasantry but in the progress of the whole french community progress agricultural industrial commercial scientific and literary the conversation of an independent thinker like montaigne had at the least as much attraction for him as that of his comrades in arms long before henry the fourth was king of france on the nineteenth of december fifteen eighty four montaigne wrote quote, the king of navarre came to see me at montaigne where he had never been before and was there two days attended by my people without any of his own officers he permitted neither tasting or essai nor state banquet or couvert and slept in my bed End quote on the twenty fourth of october fifteen eighty seven after winning the battle of contrat henry stopped to dine at montaigne's house though its possessor had remained faithful to henry the third whose troops had just lost the battle and on the eighteenth of january fifteen ninety when the king of navarre now become king of france besieged and took the town of lisieux montaigne wrote to him quote, all the time through sir i have observed in you this same fortune that is now yours and you may remember that even when i had to make confession thereof to my parish priest i did not omit to regard your successes with a kindly eye now with more reason and freedom i hug them to my heart yonder they do you service by effects but they do you no less service here by reputation the report goes as far as the shot we could not derive from the justice of your cause arguments so powerful in sustaining or reducing your subjects as we do from the news of the prosperity of your enterprises. End quote. Abroad, the policy of Henry the Fourth was as judicious and far-sighted as it was just and sympathetic at home. There has been much writing and dissertation about what has been called his grand design this name has been given to a plan for the religious and political organization of christendom consisting in the division of europe amongst three religions the catholic 
the calvinistic and the lutheran and into fifteen states great and small monarchical or republican with equal rights alone recognized as members of the christian confederation regulating in concert their common affairs and pacifically making up their differences whilst all the while preserving their national existence this plan is lengthily and approvingly set forth several times over in the economie royale which sully's secretaries wrote at his suggestion and probably sometimes at his dictation henry the fourth was a prince as expansive in ideas as he was inventive who was a master of the art of pleasing and himself took great pleasure in the freedom and unconstraint of conversation no doubt the notions of the grand design often came into his head and he often talked about them to sully his confidant in what he thought as well as in what he did sully for his part was a methodical spirit a regular downright putter in practice evidently struck and charmed by the richness and grandeur of the prospects placed before his eyes by his king and feeling pleasure in shedding light upon them whilst giving them a more positive and more complete shape than belonged to their first and original appearance and thus came down to us the grand design which so far as henry the fourth was concerned was never a definite project his true external policy was much more real and practical he had seen and experienced the evils of religious hatred and persecution he had been a great sufferer from the supremacy of the house of austria in europe and he had for a long while opposed it when he became the most puissant and most regarded of european kings he set his heart very strongly on two things toleration for the three religions which had succeeded in establishing themselves in europe and showing themselves capable of contending one against another and the abasement of the house of austria which even after the death of charles v and philip the second remained the real and the formidable rival of france the external policy of henry from the treaty of vervins to his death was religious peace in europe and the alliance of catholic french with protestant england and germany against spain and austria he showed constant respect and deference towards the papacy a power highly regarded in both the rival camps though much fallen from the substantial importance it had possessed in europe during the middle ages french policy striving against spanish policy such was the true and the only serious characteristic of the grand design four men very unequal in influence as well as merit sully villeroy duplessis mornay and d'aubigne did henry the fourth effective service by very different processes and in very different degrees towards establishing and rendering successful this internal and external policy three were protestants villeroy alone was a catholic sully is beyond comparison with the other three he is the only one whom henry the fourth called my friend the only one who had participated in all the life and all the government of henry the fourth his evil as well as his exalted fortunes his most painful embarrassments at home as well as his greatest political acts the only one whose name has remained inseparably connected with that of a master whom he served without servility as well as without any attempt to domineer there is no idea of entering here upon his personal history we would only indicate his place in that of his king maximilian de bethune rosny born in fifteen fifty nine and six years younger than henry of navarre was barely seventeen when in fifteen seventy six he attended henry on his flight from the court of france to go and recover in navarre his independence of position and character rosny was content at first to serve him as a volunteer quote, in order he said to learn the profession of arms from its first rudiments 
End quote. He speedily did himself honor in several actions. In 1580, the King of Navarre took him as chamberlain and counselor. On becoming King of France, Henry IV, in 1594, made him Secretary of State. In 1596, put him on the Council of Finance. In 1597, appointed him Grand Surveyor of France. And in 1599, Superintendent General of Finance and Master of the Ordnance. In 1602 he was made Marquis de Rosny and Councillor of Honour in the Parliament, then Governor of the Bastille, Superintendent of Fortifications, and Surveyor of Paris. In 1603, Governor of Poitou. Lastly, in 1606, his estate of Sully-sur-Loire was raised to a duchy peerage, and he was living under this name, which has become his historical name, when in 1610 the assassination of Henry IV sent into retirement for thirty-one years the confidant of all his thoughts and the principal minister of a reign which, independently of the sums usefully expended for the service of the state and the advancement of public prosperity, had extinguished, according to the most trustworthy evidence, two hundred and thirty-five millions of debts, and which left in the coffers of the state, in ready money or in safe securities, forty-three million one hundred and thirty-eight thousand four hundred and ninety livres. Nicolas de Neufville, lord of Villeroy, who was born in 1593, and whose grandfather had been secretary of state under Francis I, was, whilst Henry III was still reigning, member of a small secret council at which all questions relating to Protestants were treated of. Though a strict Catholic, and convinced that the King of France ought to be openly in the ranks of the Catholics, and to govern with their support, he sometimes gave Henry III some free-spoken and wise counsels when he saw him spending his time with the brotherhoods of penitents whose head he had declared himself quote, sir said he debts and obligations are considered according to dates and therefore old debts ought to be paid before new ones you were king of france before you were head of the brotherhoods your conscience binds you to render to the kingship that which you owe it rather than to the fraternity that which you have promised it you can excuse yourself from one but not from the other you only wear the sackcloth when you please, but you have the crown always on your head. End quote. When the wars of religion broke out, when the League took form and Henry de Guise had been assassinated at Blois, Villeroy, naturally a leaguer and a moderate leaguer, became the immediate adviser of the Duke of Mayenne. After Henry III's death, as soon as he heard that Henry IV promised to have himself instructed in the Catholic religion, he announced his intention of recognizing him if he held to this engagement and he held to his own for he was during five years the intermediary between henry the fourth and mayenne incessantly labouring to reconcile them and to prevent the estates of the league from giving the crown of france to a spanish princess villois was a leaguer of the patriotically french type and so henry the fourth as soon as he was firm upon his throne summoned him to his councils and confided to him the direction of foreign affairs the late leaguer sat beside sully and exerted himself to give the prevalence in henry the fourth's external policy to catholic maxims and alliances whilst sully remaining firmly protestant in the service of his king turned catholic continued to be in foreign matters the champion of protestant policy and alliances 
there was thus seen during the sixteenth century in the french monarchy a phenomenon which was to repeat itself during the eighteenth in the republic of the united states of america when in seventeen eighty nine its president washington summoned to his cabinet hamilton and jefferson together one the staunchest of the aristocratic federalists and the other the warm defender of democratic principles and tendencies washington in his lofty and calm impartiality considered that to govern the nascent republic he had need of both and he found a way in fact to make both of service to him henry the fourth had perceived himself to be in an analogous position with france and europe divided between catholics and protestants whom he aspired to pacificate he likewise succeeded an incomplete success however as generally happens when the point attained is an adjournment of knotty questions which war has vainly attempted to cut and the course of ideas and events has not yet had time to unravel henry the fourth made so great a case of villeroy's co-operation and influence that without loving him as he loved sully he upheld him and kept him as secretary of state for foreign affairs to the end of his reign he precisely defined his peculiar merit when he said quote, princes have servants of all values and all sorts some do their own business before that of their master others do their masters and do not forget their own but villeroy believes that his master's business is his own and he bestows thereon the same zeal that another does in pushing his own suit or labouring at his own vine though short and frigidly written the memoirs of villeroy give in fact the idea of a man absorbed in his commission and regarding it as his own business as well as that of his king and country philippe du plessis mornay occupied a smaller place than sully and villeroy in the government of henry the fourth but he held and deserves to keep a great one in the history of his times he was the most eminent and also the most moderate of the men of profound piety and conviction of whom the reformation had made a complete conquest soul and body and who placed their public fidelity to the religious creed above every other interest and every other affair in this world he openly blamed and bitterly deplored henry the fourth's conversion to catholicism but he did not ignore the weighty motives for it his disapproval and his vexation did not make him forget the great qualities of his king or the services he was rendering france or his own duty and his earlier feelings towards him this unbending protestant who had contributed as much as anybody to put henry the fourth on the throne who had been admitted further than anybody except sully to his intimacy who ever regretted that his king had abandoned his faith who braved all perils and all disgraces to keep and maintain his own this mornay malcontent saddened all but banished from court assailed by his friends irritation and touched by their sufferings never took part against the king whom he blamed and of whom he thought he had to complain in any faction or any intrigue on the contrary he remained unshakably faithful to him incessantly striving to maintain or re-establish in the protestant church in france some little order and peace and between the protestants and henry the fourth some little mutual confidence and friendliness mornay had made up his mind to serve forever a king who had saved his country he remained steadfast and active in his creed but without falling beneath the yoke of any narrow-minded idea preserving his patriotic good sense in the midst of his fervent piety and bearing with sorrowful constancy his friend's burst of anger and his king's exhibitions of ingratitude between fifteen ninety seven and sixteen o five three incidents supervened which put to the proof henry the fourth's feelings towards his old and faithful servant 
in october fifteen ninety seven mornay still governor of saumur had gone to angers to concert plans with marshal de brissac for an expedition which by order of the king they were to make into brittany against the duke of mercoeur not yet reduced to submission as he was passing along the street with only three or four of his men he was unexpectedly attacked by one sieur de saint phal who after calling upon him to give some explanation as to the disagreement that had taken place between them five months before brutally struck him a blow on the head with a stick knocked him down immediately mounted a horse that was held already on the spot and fled in haste leaving monet in the hands of ten or a dozen accomplices who dealt him several sword thrusts as he was rising to defend himself and who in their turn fled some passers-by hurried up monet's wounds were found to be slight but the affair which nobody hesitated to call murder made a great noise there was general indignation the king was at once informed of it and whilst the question was being discussed at saumur whether mornay ought to seek reparation by way of arms or by that of law henry the fourth wrote to him in his own hand on the eighth of november I am extremely displeased at the outrage you have met with, wherein I participate both as king and as your friend. As the former I will do you justice, and myself too. If I bore only the second title, you have none whose sword would be more ready to leap from its scabbard than mine, or who would put his life at your service more cheerfully than I. Take this for granted, that in effect I will render you the offices of king, master, and friend and on this truthful assurance i conclude praying god to have you in his holy keeping st phal remained for a long while concealed in the very district amongst his relatives but on the twelfth of january fifteen ninety nine he was arrested and put in the bastille and according to the desire of mornay himself the king decided that he should be brought before him unarmed should place one knee on the ground should ask his pardon and then assuming his arms should accordingly receive that pardon first of all from mornay whom the king had not permitted to exact in another way the reparation due to him and afterwards from the mouth of the king himself together with a severe admonition to take heed to himself for the future the affair having thus terminated there was no more heard of st phal and mornay returned to saumur with a striking mark of the king's sympathy who in his own words had felt pleasure quote, in avenging him as king and as friend the second incident was of more political consequence and neither the king nor mornay conducted themselves with sufficient discretion and dignity in july fifteen ninety eight mornay published a treatise on the institution of the eucharist in the christian church how and by what degrees the mass was introduced in its place it was not only an attack upon the fundamental dogma and cult of the catholic church the pope was expressly styled antichrist in it clement the eighth wrote several times about it to henry the fourth complaining that a man of such high standing in the government and in the king's regard should treat so insultingly a sovereign in alliance with the king and head of the church to which the king belonged the pope's complaint came opportunely henry the fourth was at this time desirous of obtaining from the court of rome annulment of his marriage with marguerite de valois that he might be enabled to contract another he did not as yet say with whom mornay's book was vigorously attacked not only in point of doctrine but in point of fact he was charged with having built his foundation upon a large number of misquotations and the bishop of evreux m du perron a great friend of the king's whom he had always supported and served said that he was prepared to point out as such nearly five hundred 
the dispute grew warm between the two theologians mornay demanded leave to prove the falsehood of the accusation the bishop accepted the challenge for all his defence of his book and his erudition mornay did not show any great hurry to enter upon the contest and on the other hand the bishop reduced the number of the quotations against which he objected the sum total of the quotations found fault with was fixed at sixty a conference was summoned to look into them and six commissioners three catholic and three protestant were appointed to give judgment de thou and pitou amongst the former dufresne lacanet and cassoubon amongst the latter erudition was worthily represented there and there was every probability of justice the conference met on the fourth of may sixteen hundred at fontainebleau in presence of the king and many great lords magistrates ecclesiastics and distinguished spectators End of section 12.